Welcome back to the Move, Eat and Manage podcast show, where we sit down and have conversations with interesting and inspiring legends about mindset, movement, nutrition, and bringing more energy into your day. Today, I'm catching up with Cheryl Snyder, who is the other half of the powerhouse gym that is Lone Dog MPE in Albuquerque. Shez is not only a health coach, but she's also like a super inspirational person to be around because she's come back from like a very debilitating autoimmune disease where she could barely even open the door to being able to do seven ultra marathons, six multi-day running events, and represent Australia three times as an amazing kettlebell athlete. So a lot of listeners asked for this story, and I know a lot of people at Lone Dog Gym have asked for this story, so let's not waste any more time, and let's get into it. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, let's get into it. Hi everyone, Chris here and I'm talking to Shez. Shez is the other half of Lone Dog and Cheryl, can you give everyone a bit of an elevator pitch on what it is you do for a living and then a bit of a rundown of all the awesome stuff you've done that we're going to talk about today? Well, I suppose in a nutshell, I'd say I would be a health coach. I uh, help people who are at a point in their lives that want to get better, feel better, and become better versions of themselves. Uh, as for what I've done, um, I have, I'm, I'm predominantly a runner, but I also say I'm a kettlebell runner now because I'm also um, heavily into the kettlebell sport. I uh, have done seven ultra marathons. I have done six multi-day marathons. I have done um, kettlebell sport all over the world along with these ultra marathons and multi-day ultras all over the world as well. Um, but my, um, my real passion is obviously just helping others become better versions of themselves. Yeah, cool. So let's go back to the beginning. You told me about this off air, but you just started running, you started getting into running and you found out some pretty, oh, for a lot of people, pretty shitty news, but do you want to talk a bit about what you got, the news you got dropped? Yeah, so... In 2011, I was starting to find my mojo with running and I'd, I'd worked my way up from 5, 10, 15K runs to finally deciding that I was going to run my first half marathon in 2012. But um, along the way, as I was starting to do the training, I started getting a few niggles and a couple of just, just things that I need to go and see the doctor about where I thought they were probably four unrelated things. Um, but it turned out that when I went to the doctor, they were all very related. And um, I actually ended up being diagnosed with cirrhotic arthritis. Yeah. Do you want to give it a spiel of what that means to people who have no idea what that is? People sort of know what arthritis is, but give a spiel of what, so, 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 so what, so, so, so what? <laughs> so cirrhotic arthritis is um, very similar in terms of rheumatoid arthritis. Most people know what rheumatoid arthritis is. That's the one where you see the, the 60 and 70 year old um, people with like really deformed joints and fingers pointing in opposite directions and things like that. Um, cirrhotic arthritis is the same. It is a, a deformity within the joint if left untreated, um, but it also causes severe pain. And um, my particular one also come with a side of uh, a skin allergy. So my skin had psoriasis. So it looked like I was actually like my skin was just peeling off um, from the outside, just like sh constantly shedding skin as if I was some form of a reptile going through <laughs> <laughs> its little day-to-day -day activities. 
Um, the difference between cirrhotic arthritis and uh, rheumatoid arthritis is the fact that uh, rheumatoid arthritis, if your left thumb is inflamed, your right thumb will be inflamed. Whereas with cirrhotic arthritis, it could be my left thumb and my right elbow and my left shoulder. And it's sort of, it's kind of, there's no rhyme or reason as to where or how it works. Uh, when I first got diagnosed, I thought it was just, um, my hands seemed to give me a lot of grief. Like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my, my, all the joints in my hands would just be aching. Um, and I just thought it was just, you know, being cold because it was such a deep bone freeze is what it felt like. Um, but yeah, it's just, that's what it is. <laughs> so tell us a bit about, so you went down and saw a specialist, I'm guessing, or you saw a specialist about it and tell us a bit about when this, this bomb got dropped on you, as you just started getting in the running, how to feel, what was going through your head at the time? Yeah. So I'd actually just come back from a, a pretty, um, big holiday away where, uh, it was kind of like a lot of stuff had happened. I ramped up my training and in the ramp up to my training, my um, Achilles had started to develop an issue. And I thought, oh, well, I'm about to go on two week break. So that's all right. It'll sort of need a bit of rest. Maybe that'll sort of get through it. While I was away, um, my right thumb um, just swelled up and I was like, man, I must have, it was a bit of a boozy holiday to be honest. So I was like, <laughs> maybe I did something on the holiday that hurt that thumb. And I thought, oh, I'll, I don't know why that hasn't come good. That's kind of weird. Um, then I was going to the doctor about the psoriasis anyway. Um, and then I was like, I had a couple of joints that were just giving me some grief. So I was like, that was the fourth thing that I had to go and see the doctor about. So as I went to the doctor and I went in and spoke to him, he actually said to me, look, these are actually all related. Cirrhotic arthritis, one of the parts of it is that um, people get uh, Achilles tendinopathy. It's part of the, the symptoms. So it wasn't actually a running-related um, Achilles problem. It was uh, arthritis-related <laughs> uh, Achilles problem. Yeah, wow. The was part of the um, arthritis. Apparently, it's something like 3% of people that have uh, psoriasis will develop arthritis and vice versa. And then um, the, the thumb was obviously um, not actually a, a PFO, as we call it, a piston fell over. It was actually the, the joint had actually swollen up because of the arthritis. And then the, the other pains that I was having throughout my body were because of the arthritis as well. When I first saw the doctor, the doctor had just said, look, we're going to run some tests and see what happens. It could be one of about five things. And he was actually originally testing me for um, multiple sclerosis. So ah. I was actually... Um, when he, when he come back, it was like multiple sclerosis, arthritis, uh, la, uh, lupus, yeah. and a couple of those sorts of things. So when the tests come back and said that it was actually arthritis, it's kind of a weird thing, but I was kind of relieved because I was like, I don't want MS and I don't want to have lupus. And yeah, yeah, understandably. <laughs> <all these> <laughs> <laughs> kind of... Not things that you wanted to hear, but then after a little bit of time when it actually dawned on me that I was only in my early 20s and I'd just been diagnosed with arthritis, I was a bit like, well, that's an old person's disease, isn't it? Like, why is somebody in their 20s getting diagnosed with arthritis? Um, so that was a bit of a, an issue to start off with. Um, from there, he started putting me onto some um, uh, steroids. So yeah, it was, cool. I was, I was being cycled on um, steroids for the for the arthritis. That sounded weird. Uh, I said you said steroids. I'm like, yeah, cool. 
No, yeah, yeah. Tell me about I mean. the <laughs> Sorry about the steroids too. And then in that time, he, he'd, he'd sent me off to go and see um, a specialist. Um, but there was obviously a waiting period to get in to see the specialist as well. In that time, obviously, um, well, over that time, in, in that process, I was just like, it's not that bad. Like people who have arthritis, you know, sort of go through these waves of stuff. I'm like, I don't think I have it. Like, I think it's a misdiagnosis. So I kind of went through, you know, five signs of grief. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly in denial. <laughs> and then um, I went and seen a specialist. And at that stage, I was, I was in pain, but the pain was only in the morning. And, you know, it wasn't too, too bad. It was, it, was, it was manageable and I could tolerate it. Um, that being said, I do have a pretty high pain threshold, I've been told. Um, so went in and seen the specialist and he started putting me on all these different concoctions of drugs, which all had health, um, complications as part of it. So one of the, one of the drugs that he put me on was methotrexate. And when you get a, a prescription for a drug that the, the sticker on the outside suggests that if you're not taking the drug, that you shouldn't handle the packaging, it starts to ask some questions really? as to ingesting such a medication yeah, wow. <laughs> so these were all the first sort of things where i was just like something's not right here not loving this whole process sort of thing anyway sort of six months was going on and instead of actually getting better i was getting worse so i in, in that in that sort of six month period i'd gone from just having aches and pains and a few niggles to now not being able to open up my back door because um I couldn't grip onto anything. And I remember one morning trying to open up the back door and just being like, how can I not open this door? Going out to my car and trying to turn the key in the ignition and my thumb, as I was pushing the key to turn, just I couldn't put any pressure on it. So I had to actually try and turn my key in my car with a fist, which is just ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden I sat there and thought to myself, I'm taking all of these like medications and the medications, the steroids were just making me either really, really hungry, and I'm someone that is always loving food anyway, or just really, really angry. And I remember getting like really bad road rage one day and thinking, wow, I've got to get off. I've actually got roid rage. (laughs) 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 I just like everything was irritating me. People breathing. I just wanted to punch them in the face. Like it was just this horrible concoction of change in hormones and these drugs and everything that they were putting me in. And I was actually getting worse rather than getting better. So I decided um, I'd do some research and actually found out that who my doctor had actually sent me off to um, wasn't a rheumatologist. It was just um, more of a, a GP specialist. So uh. as, a, as a doctor, he, he couldn't actually give me, as I found out down the track, he would never be able to prescribe me the drugs that I actually needed that a rheumatologist could have actually prescribed for me. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so that, was, that, that was a long, long journey. Yeah, well, the 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 straw the straw that drew the that really broke the back was when I went. Was I went in to see this so called specialist, and um, I was really, really in a lot of pain this day. And he said, "You need to have some um, injections into your joints," and they were, it was in my hands. And I said to him, "Are there any side effects to having these um, these injections?" And he said, absolutely no um, side effects whatsoever. And then just started injecting me. 
as soon as he finished injecting me, I said to him, I can't feel my hand. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, that'll happen every now and then. I must have, you know, hit a nerve or something. So give it a few hours and you'll be fine. And I was like, well, that's a side effect, isn't it? And he's like, oh, no, just don't handle any hot, cu- hot cups of teas and stuff like that. I'd lost the feeling in my hand. I'd driven to this in- appointment by myself. I had work scheduled for the afternoon. I was just like, how is this even like a competent doctor? Yeah. Anyway, so that was, that was it. I was just like, from here on, I need to find someone different. This isn't my doctor. And if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have got to where I am today. I went to a couple of different specialists just trying to source them out. And in the end, I would walk into the specialist appointment and just say, this is what I've got. This is my age. Can you help me or can you not? And if they couldn't give me a definite answer, they weren't my doctor. And um, after talking to different people um, who actually had um, different types of arthritis, I kept getting this referral back to this one doctor down in Melbourne. So I had to wait the, I think it was three months or six months or something like that to go and see him. But when I finally did get in to see him, I walked into the office and I said to him, this is what I've got. This is my age. Can you help me? And he goes, six months, you'll be 20 gold. And I was just like, you're awfully cocky. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But that's so how the long? best thing I've heard so far. <laughs> so when seeing um, doc, <laughs> we'll just call him Dr. Nick. As yes. Dr. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> so seeing Dr. Nick and finding this guy, how long was that? That was about 12 months. <sighs> How'd you yeah. go? So were you able to still do your running in that 12 months or did you just have to put down the back burner? At that stage, I deteriorated so much. I couldn't, I could, I could barely walk at that stage. Like I was taking, cause I was obviously, I was still doing um, the fitness stuff. Yeah. I was trying to take group sessions that were, we were outdoors at that stage. Um, it was the middle of winter. Um, winter, I get really, really bad. And um, I, I could barely walk, let alone try and run. It was, it was really frustrating. And even when I went and seen this, this new specialist that I'd gotten onto, um, he just said to me, in this process, when your body is in pain, you need to listen to it because you will make it worse. Yeah. So it was like, I want to get you better, but in the process of getting you better, you need to let your ego sit down and understand that by trying to force yourself to do this, you're actually going to set yourself further back. Yeah, wow. So, At least he's super honest up front, which is really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing that was really cool about it was in that time, because I couldn't run and that was that was my exercise of choice at the time. Um, I started trying to find other modes of being able to exercise. So the, the specialists before that were all like, you need to find non um, plyometric exercises, non weight bearing. You need to go into either bike riding or swimming. You can't run. You're never going to be able to run. Um, you've got arthritis. You need to sort of figure your life out. This is not going to be the sport for you. Um, so I was sort of in that mind frame where I'm just like, this is absolute rubbish. Like how can people just be so black and white about it? Mm. Um, but in that process, I was trying different exercises out in trying to find relief. And one of the ones that I found, cause, um, I had a lot of arthritis in my shoulders and my elbows was using a kettlebell by just doing a swing would actually like almost unglue the joint like that weight. When I do a swing, would separate the joints and create this amazing feeling when I had the arthritis in that joint, which I was like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm willing to sort of find this out a bit more and do a bit more playing around with this to see if this can actually benefit where I am. And that's, that's pretty much 
the starting point to how I actually ended up becoming to love the kettlebell. <laughs> That's super cool. So it's sort of like you were just mixing around and playing around with stuff and then you found this one thing that sort of helped you feel good at the time when you're feeling really shit. So that's really, that's super awesome. No wonder why you're loving kettlebells now. So (laughs) you found a specialist and he said roughly six months to get to back to pain free or doing what you want to do. What's that? What was that journey like? It was actually super cool because he said six months and I reckon within the first month, my skin had actually completely (laughs) cleared up. Um, and I, I was just like, well, it had been like so long since my, my skin had actually been normal. Like my skin, I was, I was covered like forearms, my scalp. I couldn't, I couldn't, I could touch my scalp and not feel my head. It was so thick of like just excess skin that had just built up there. Uh, my shins, my forearms, uh, even around like my ribs and stuff like that were just covered in like this rash it was it was pretty much a rash in around my around my midsection and my forearms and my my shins but on my scalp it was just it was like really 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 bad dandruff because it was such a thick overgrowth that it just the skin just kept shedding and shedding and shedding so it was kind of, it was it was the most horrific as and even as a woman i suppose it you know it affects girls i suppose a bit more in terms of self esteem and things like that and yeah that was, 100% yeah yeah I just felt so much better about in terms of just getting that problem dealt with because I'd been to different dermatologists and stuff like that. And none of them could help me. All they could do was give me these expensive creams and ointments that did nothing except for empty the bank account. <laughs> yeah. So that would have been pretty cool. That one month in, you would have been just bought into whatever he told you to do after that pretty much. Yeah. 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 And in that month too, like the, um, the, the ability to move, had had changed like I still had pain but it was it was much better than what I had been so at that stage I was I was barely able to walk and at this stage I was I was now being able to wake up in the morning and not feel like I was 70 year a 70 year old woman so yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty cool and then within three months I I was actually uh, able to start running again after three months of seeing this specialist yeah wow so now we're going we're getting back into running did you have to build it up again from scratch? Start with the five Ks and build it up again. So at the at the point when um, I was told that running was never going to be my sport and I wasn't mm. able to exercise and I wasn't able to move, I'd actually come across this race called the the Marathon de Saab, yep. and that was a multi day race that was held in the Sahara Desert. And um, I thought to myself, if I'm ever given the the all clear to run again. I'm going to run that race. Like that is the race that I'm going to. That's where I'm going. That's what's happening. So as soon as I got this three months in with this specialist and was able to start running again, I'm just like, all right, 5Ks, here we go. Like I had to build up really, really slowly to get back to those 5Ks. Um, and even in that process, like I, I even still say it was like, it was a three year sort of before I went from, being able to run to getting back to doing this multi-day stage race in Morocco. Yeah. Um, So I lost a lot of speed because obviously it was no longer about being able to run the way that I was running before because it was running to stay within my bubble, uh, which was really different because previous to that, I was, I would just go out and run and run hard all the time. Um, 
I had to change the way that I had to run. And it was, it was less about being able to run fast. It was more about actually being able to enjoy the fact that I could run. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of days, a lot of cold, dark days when I'd be driving to work, looking at other people running and being like, if I ever get that chance to run again, I'm never going to sleep in on a, on a winter morning when I have the choice to be able to go out and run or, you know, there was always that motivation behind it where you were like, I always took that option for granted where, you know, training started to get hard. So you'd, you'd skip out on training for a sleep in or you just miss a session because, you know, it didn't really matter. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of helped that drive a lot more because you're able to, to, to understand what that, the impact of being able to do that was. Yeah. It's kind of like we, as humans, we take a lot of stuff for granted and you had this running thing that you were getting so into and it got taken away and then given again, it back, you're like, Oh my shit. I'm never not going to do something because this is amazing. I can do it again. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I worked my way up from the 5K back up to a 10K and then finally got to, because I never actually got to run the half marathon that I'd, I'd started training for. So mm. the big one was being able to get down and run a half marathon, which was a really cool thing to be able to do. Um, and then I ended up signing up for the Melbourne Marathon, um, which was funny because when I went down to do the Melbourne Half Marathon, I got really distracted by some jelly beans and ended up, instead of running a half marathon, I ended up running 36 (laughs) Ks. That's awesome. (laughs) So uh, kind of stuffed that one up. (laughs) Yeah, it was jelly beans. Yeah, jelly. It's the black jelly beans because I don't like black jelly beans. I was trying to get rid of the black jelly beans I picked up. (laughs) The funny part about it was the jelly beans weren't for the half marathon runners. They were actually for the full marathon runners, so it was my own fault. (laughs) You just saw jelly beans. You're like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm doing 5Ks. I need them. Give them to me. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then just started working my way back up with every ambition in my mind being like, if I can get up to a half marathon, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Morocco. I'm doing this. Mm. So, um, yeah, then started after I got back up to running a half marathon, went, okay, time to start getting ready for a full marathon. Full marathon training started getting really hard. And the only way I know how to make something not become hard is to get a bigger challenge. So then I decided that I better sign up for a 100K. Uh, <laughs> marathon de Saab has like an 80, 90K day typically every year. So I was like, well, I need to be able to run 100Ks anyway. So my <laughs> 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 my talking myself into making a, a full marathon seem nice and easy was to uh, sign up for a 100K race. <laughs> what was that like? That, that was been your first one. experience. It was my first ultra. Mm. Uh, it was down at the Surf Coast Century. I was fortunate enough that when I signed up to go over to Morocco, I had three fabulous friends decide they were going to come over with me. So in the training process for Marathon de Saab, um, these three friends also joined me on this 100K run down at the Surf Coast Century. Yeah, nice. Um, so we, we decided we were going to do it together because none of us had ever done a... a an ultra before um and we just thought yep let's go and do this and see see what happens <laughs> that was interesting in itself because we got to find out some pretty pretty random things like hallucinations <laughs> fueling, timing <laughs> how everybody copes under stress pressure and sleep deprivation <laughs> yeah it'd be a big eye opener 
Yeah, yeah. So um, that was actually the first time I ever had a hallucination when I was running. Again, not health promoting, but uh, <laughs> all part of the process to get me to where I am today to, uh, to be more health focused because as someone that's ruined their body, had their body ruined through disease and then gone and tried to ruin their body after they've been given the all clear to go ahead, I've decided that now it's time to start looking at uh, the body needs to be looked after and, you know, again, not taking it for granted. We need to, to consider where we're going to be in 20, 30, 40 and 50 years. Yeah. And I reckon we're going to come around to that again, but I want to go back to Morocco. So you got there. Tell us what it was like. This is the big thing you wanted to do. It was, it was, <laughs> it was <laughs> nothing I ever thought it would be. It was, it was the first time going to like, an African country. It was yeah. the first time getting over towards Europe. It was the furthest I'd ever travelled away from Australia. It was a country I had no idea about. Um, I I was grateful that I was able to do that with some really good friends um, because I think I I think I would have found that really difficult to do by myself going over there that far away to that kind of a, a culture as well. Um, and then uh, turning up to this race and having, having that realisation that what I've signed up to is not what I expected one iota. Really? <laughs> no, I was, I was well underprepared, more to do with my kit because I'd never done a multi-day race before. So this, this race is completely self-supported. You have to carry all of your own food for the week. You have to carry all your sleeping equipment for the week. Anything that you need for seven days out in the Sahara Desert, you have to have yourself. The only thing that's supplied to you is water and it's, it's incremented out at checkpoints along the day. So we got over there and the heat was incredible. I, I believe one of the days was like 52 degrees and we're out there. Wow. It was, I, I've never thought that I would be in a position where I'd be looking for shade. I was trying to get into people's like shadows for shade because there was, there was no trees around. There was nothing that you could hide under. It was, it was just insane. And yeah, it was, it was an experience I, I was definitely not ready for. It was my first DNF. Yes. Okay. DNF yeah. yeah. Um, and I just, I had, I had no idea what I'd, I'd honestly got myself into. It was, it was, it opened me up to a whole new world. I mean, without that race, I wouldn't have met so many people that I've met. Um, I, I, I met some amazing people that I still am in contact with now. Um, you know, I went and caught up with, uh, what was that, like six of them over in New Zealand this year. Uh, I caught up with another one over in Hawaii earlier this year. So I've been really lucky to have met some fantastic people that I've also been able to run around the circuit with and, and catch up with now. Um, but that, that, that first trip over there where I turned up thinking that I knew what was going on, having it handed it to me on a plate was yeah. a real eye. So there was the big race. You got the DNF, but how did you feel? Like you still got over there. Did you still feel pretty pumped, like that you actually were able to do as much as you did, or was it a big, oh, like a big? I was downer? devastated. I was. Yeah. I felt like I'd been kicked, kicked hard. I'd fallen down, 
And then while I was down, people were still kicking me because I just, I, I, I couldn't believe the difference in what I thought I was going to do and what it was. I couldn't believe that I just didn't have, and I think, I think it come down to a little bit like the hundred K that we did was so, it, it wasn't as hard as I expected it to be. So therefore I thought that this couldn't be as hard as I expected it to be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it was a real level up. It was a real moment where I was just like, okay, wow, that, that happened. But uh, at the same stage, even though I felt like I'd been handed it to me, I was, I was adamant that it wasn't the end. And I, under no circumstances was I not finishing that event. And that's why I just, I just went, I'm, I'm coming back next year to, to do this because I can't not finish this after what I've been through to get here. Yeah. So you went back. What was round well, two like? Round two was amazing. So it's really funny. When I left the first year, I was just like, Morocco, hate it. <laughs> Every time I thought about the place, I was just like, what a hell hole of a place to have. <laughs> Who would ever want to go over there? What a... What a complete crappy culture to live in. Like, <laughs> and then I was just like, oh, I can't believe I'm training to go to a place that I absolutely despise, absolutely hate. You know, just had that, that complete disarray about it. But <laughs> so that was luckily, like anger training for like the whole year to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was anger training where it was like, I want to beat this race. But at the same time, it was this thing where I was just like, I need to get there, get this done because this is, this is not where I need to be. I don't want to spend my time in a country that I don't even enjoy being in. doing <laughs> something that, You know, I might not even finish. So there was like this whole doubt in my head the whole time. But again, I was fortunate enough because that first year I, I got along with um, so many of the Aussies that went over there. I'd, I'd become really good friends with, with quite a few of them. And, and Dion Leonard was one of them. Um, some of you might know him from uh, Finding Gobi. He's the gentleman that found Gobi over in the Gobi Desert race. He's, yeah. he's um, and me and him were, he was going back the following year. Him, he and his wife, Lucia, had actually competed that first year. They were my temp buddies. And um, he knew that I was going back the following year to, to try and get some redemption. And he was going back and there was a couple of other guys that were in in the Australian contingency. So there was Jakey Coates who was in there. Um, there was uh, Sean and then Pooley, my mate Richard Poole from Sydney. Yeah, they were all in there and they were all going back. And we decided that, you know, with the, the modern greatness of technology, we were all able to still stay in really good contact. So uh, along with my friend Anthea, who, who also had an unfortunate DNF over there in that first year, she decided to come back with us and we, we, we'd formed our tent and we had 12 months to train and train we did. So had these guys where you were talking to them on a weekly basis about training strategy, food strategy, pack strategies. So I was a lot more in the know. I, I'd had it set out so that I knew exactly how much my, ba- my bag weighed on day one, how much it would weigh after I'd had breakfast on day two. You know, I had all these increments done and I actually had to become quite compulsive about it to the point where in the two weeks prior before leaving, every day I would unpack my bag and repack my bag just to make sure that I knew what was in there, that I didn't have anything that I didn't need and that I, I was just mentally prepared for what I was about to go in for. It was like I was, I was prepping for war this time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and the funny thing was I went over there and 
the whole time with this, this bad taste in my mouth that I was going to hate it and it was going to be horrible and all this stuff. And then I just remember on the first night before the first day going outside of the tent. So these tents that they put you in, it's not really a tent. It's just a big wide sheet that's just stuck up with two sticks on either end and um, seven people sleep underneath them. It's all opened. It's all that sort of stuff. So I just sort of walked outside and looked up and it was this giant full moon over the Sahara Desert. Everybody else was in bed asleep and here I was in the middle of the Sahara Desert just looking around going, that's the most beautiful thing I think I have ever seen in my life. And from that moment, I actually, my mindset had changed from being angry and not wanting to be in the country to being like, oh, wow, there's some, there's some stuff that might actually come out of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's super cool. And I sort of think the way you prepped for that year moving into it, it was like you were preparing yourself for the absolute worst and then probably in the back of your mind, hoping for the best. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. So you had everything in your head, like as much as you can in your control, you were ticking your boxes before you started. Yeah. And I, I even in the back of my head started thinking to myself, what happens if I'm putting all this work in to go and do this? And then I get like struck down with like arthritis again. Like what happens if the medication stops working? What happens if something happens? And then, I, and there was a bit of fear of that happening as well, where I was kind of like, you know, I'm still, there's still that, that, that possibility that it might be taken away. So just being very cautious of that still too. Yeah, cool. So you, you dominated in the round two? Oh, don't think I dominated. <laughs> I definitely finished. <laughs> and it's probably the only race I've ever cried at the end of. Yeah, However, yeah. It all come with a cost. It was my, my body got beaten up. I'd, I'd ruined my feet. I had lost the feeling in my big toe. Um, I, I could barely walk. I, I just completely run myself into the ground. My feet were trashed over six months after the event. Um, my body, like, because everything was it, like the elements and the lack of sleep and then the effort. I reckon it was 12 months before my body actually settled down. Like I'd, I'd almost gone into chronic fatigue from it. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a bit about that. So we've done the second time and yeah, you just said, like you said, you just smashed yourself and you mentioned before too, how you went into this zone of just training and running and neglecting the health side of things. So let's go into a bit about that what happened afterwards and as you were starting to turn and switch things around to start thinking about your health more versus just getting out and running. Yeah. So um, when I'd come home, like my feet were obviously trashed, like to start off with, they'd swollen so big. They actually, I've got photos of, they'd be, they were so swollen. They, they look like elephant feet. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's purely from time on them. Like it was just absolutely horrific. And then by the time that they, it probably took, two weeks for that the swelling to go down and then when the swelling did go down like i'd had ligament damage in my ankles um, my shins had severe shin splints so they were swollen my blisters on the bottoms of my feet i'd lost two toenails that i didn't even realize i'd lost because i'd completely gone into just don't feel anything just move forward um yeah. it doesn't matter what the cost the cost is you get to finish i'd i'd like gone into what I call ultra marathon mode, which is 
Don't worry about what your body's telling you. Ignore what your body's telling you because most ultra marathon runners and uh, ultra distance people will, will completely log off from what their body's telling you to do. And um, that's what I did. I stopped feeling everything and anything to the point where I actually didn't realize it, but I'd lost feeling in my lower extremities. I, for probably the first three months, I, I didn't have a lot of feeling below the knee. And then uh, after that, that, that slowly started to come back. And then it was just like sections in my feet where I actually um, had lost feeling. And, and it was mostly like just to touch it, it felt like pins and needles. It was 12 months before I got the feeling back in my big toe. And my big toe was one where I, I taped it one of the days because it had blisters. Um, and I'd used a rigid tape because I'd run out of um, the rock tape, which is a flexible tape. And because I'd used a rigid tape, it actually cut off the circulation when my, my foot swelled. Yeah, but wow. because it cut off the circulation, I lost the feeling and I didn't know. And I just thought that the pain had gone away because I'd taped the problem. Turned out <laughs> I'd the problem so well that I'd cut off the feeling to my foot. All right. <laughs> so it was a couple of days before I realized that. So I'm actually really lucky that I didn't lose my toe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that took over 12 months before that feeling come back into my toe again. So I'm back to feeling all extremities now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. But I, I do joke a little bit about the fact that, you know, I'm an ultra runner. I haven't felt my feet in years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 12 months to get back to, and you were still, were you still training in that 12 months? Well, I tried to, and what happened was I, I just, I ended up losing all of my energy. I remember going to go for a walk one holiday and we're like, oh, where's the, where's the supermarket? Oh, it's only 5Ks away. We'll just walk. And we got about 500 meters and I was just like, I've got to sit down. I've got to sit down. And then I just, I, I just couldn't move. I ended up, ended up having to catch a cab. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And that was when I was like, something's not right. So I actually ended up taking a good three months off of all training completely. Um, that Christmas time where you almost felt like two weeks in bed? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that was that time? Yeah, right. Cool. I know where we're up to. I know where we are. Right. Yeah, yeah. So like completely just broken. Uh, just couldn't, couldn't like, just chronic fatigue really. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it's just over, well, it's not over training. It's under recovery, isn't it? So... <laughs> Body, the body had just broken down and I'd gotten into such of a mentality of ignore what you, every signal that my body gave me, I'd just ignore it. I'd, I'd try and uh, <laughs> use anything and everything to get me over the line. The amounts of different types of uh, pre-workouts, post-workouts, coffees. Uh, you got any substance, put it in me. I'll try it out and see how it goes. If it's not strong enough, I'll tell you how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Supplement it with something else and make it work better. Uh, <laughs> I'll mix this and this and this together. And yeah, it's speed. And I'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. So, okay, three months off. I remember when this happened too. So, that I remember through that three months, you were, well, I guess, trying to figure out what you were going to do when you come back into it and how you were going to do it for health. So, what was your process coming back? So, coming back from that, I... Um, I just thought to myself, I wonder, like, taking into account, like, watching. And at this stage, I'd started watching other guys that I knew in the scene just start, same thing, chronic fatigue, you know, saying it was either chronic fatigue, it was adrenal fatigue, it was just, you know, they, they caught some kind of disease 
where they'd just been struck down and they just didn't have the energy to do it. And then you started looking at them, the ones that were doing multiple things and then they'd, they'd start DNFing more. You'd watch the races go along and you'd see people really start to hit walls where they shouldn't be hitting walls or you'd see people train really well and then go into an event and then something would happen. Um, and then I'm just like, this can't be a coincidence. There's got to be something to this. And then I started wondering to myself, is it possible to do these events without it costing you your health? So one of the biggest things I've always said is ultra distance running is not good for your health. Like it, it changes your heart. Um, if you don't supplement your running with weight training and the appropriate type of uh, different training, um, you're going to build a really big heart but it's not going to be a good heart and it's not going to last a really long time. So my thought process was how can I combine what I enjoy doing and make it healthy at the same time? Because there's no point in me going and doing these things at the expense of 12 months of my life. <laughs> yeah. It's a, like you enjoy the running. If it's taking that away for 12 months, what's the point in doing that stuff in the first place? That's exactly right. And not only that, that's what it's doing right now. I can guarantee you that in 40 years' time, there'll be an effect that it has that I don't know about yet yeah. if I don't think about it now. And that's where I'm more considerate about it. I've always said, I'm not a fast runner by any means, but if I do what I do now and continue doing it for another 40 years, chances are I might actually be all right at this. I've just got to stay the distance. <laughs> So I, I look at this as my marathon for life, not my, not my sprint event to see how long. Most ultra marathoners are only in it for three to five years because they, they burn out, especially the good ones. Um, the amount of time and effort they have to put into training just absolutely kills them. So how did you, you change your mindset and your training to be able to do this stuff? And then talking about the DNS – when they come up, you started pulling yourself out of races because you started noticing things in your body when you were used to switching it off. Now you're becoming hyper aware of what's going on. So what, how did you get around or like change this mindset in you? It was really hard because obviously there's a, there's a fair bit of ego that comes along with pulling yourself from a race. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I, I remember thinking to myself at one stage was I put all of this time and effort into being out in this event. Like I think about the weekends that I'd missed hanging out with friends or the, the time that I'd, I'd put into doing the, the training uh, only to have no reward for the outcome of a DNF. And I thought to myself, well, that's a really negative way to be thinking about it. So I had to start trying to look at it from a different point of view of, what did I learn from this race so that when I go back to do something similar that I don't fall into this pitfall again? Um, and I've had many races where I've just been like, wow, okay, good to know, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been handing it a no before I started the race. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically using each race and each build-up to each race as like a learning process. So yeah, failure part out of your mind and sort of going, it's either you're either finished, yay, or it's a learning system for you. So you're figuring out how to change moving forward again. Does that kind of make yeah. sense? Yeah. And the other side of it too was thinking about these things as experiences. I didn't come here to finish a race. I come here to do something that I enjoy. 
most of the time when I'm, I do the races that I do, particularly the ones overseas, um, I do those races because they're places that not very many people get to go to. Um, the, the, the places in the Sahara Desert that I've been able to run, I've been able to run that I can say there's not too many tourists that have been out into the, the parts of the desert by foot that I've been able to get to, let alone up onto the, the mountaintops and things like that. In, in New Zealand, some of the places that I've seen over there have just been absolutely incredible and I wouldn't give them up for the world. Uh, same in America, in the States, some of the places that I've seen over there has just been absolutely, like, you just, you can't, you can't get that experience from being driven somewhere or from not actually putting yourself there. It's, it's, and that's where I had to sit back and go, I got to still do something that I really enjoyed that I would not have been able to do if I didn't come and do this. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So you're taking, taking your mindset from being, I'm sure I'm an ultra marathon runner to I'm sure I like doing, I like experiences. I like experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Cheryl. I like stuff. I like stuff. <laughs> no, that's good. So let's talk about when you're on these massive trail runs, What's kind of stuff's going down? Like you said, hallucinations and lots of weird stuff's happening, which I could imagine. Well, I can't actually. Never done one, so I can't really imagine. But yeah, what yeah. happens? What what's kind of random stuff happens? Well, <laughs> putting anybody in the shit. <laughs> I I've I've had a couple of random ones. Well, obviously, you, you get to witness some people going through some pretty rough situations. Luckily, I haven't been in all. I've been in some situations, but not not all of them. Uh, the body does some pretty miraculous things in the middle of a uh, high intensive, long distance running. Um, I've seen people that have ended up having stitches done in the middle of nowhere where they've fallen over because just pure fatigues kicked in. They've cut themselves open and just been lucky enough to have a doctor on site that they've just come through, stitched them up and set, up, set them on their way again. <laughs> I remember going through the Moroccan desert, me and Anthea, on uh, the long stage and we'd gone through the night and it was the morning and we were heading on out and it was so cold. We'd wrapped our space blankets around us in skirts and we just, we looked random as hell because it was so cold. <laughs> and this guy come up to us and we just sort of sat down to crouch because the wind was blowing and it was actually, it was the only time that it was cold the entire time that we were there. <laughs> and uh, this guy comes up and just says to us, girls, do you have, do you have, do you have children? And we're like, no. And he goes, well, think about your future children. If you stop now, you don't want them to spit in your face when they're older. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really random thing for someone to say. Like, why would our children spit in our face? <laughs> it's like, what kind of culture are you from? <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Um, I, hallucinations. The first hallucination I ever had was at the Surf Coast 100. I thought I was a penguin. Oh. Uh, who was with me as well, stopped me in the middle of the course and said I had to stop because she could see a moat, like there was a castle and a moat on the beach and that we, could, we were going to fall into this moat. Um, when I was over in Hawaii, I think I had a pretty, pretty bad case of dehydration hallucinations and I saw my mother sitting on the side of the, uh, of the track eating pizza and I thought to myself, why is my mum A in Hawaii and B eating pizza in the middle of the night on this trail. Like what a random for it to just turn. Like, it's not my mum. <laughs> uh, 
what else have I had? Like random stuff. Oh, I've, 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 I've crossed paths with a rattlesnake. Really? So yeah, over in the States, I were told that, uh, the, the snakes in the States were not, uh, we're not aggressive and or territorial. And if we saw one, as long as we just sort of like didn't antagonize it and left it alone and it just continue on. But this one, this one snake in the middle of nowhere decided that it was going to be territorial. And <laughs> I walked up, seen it, went, ooh, snake, step back. And then I'm like, oh, they said, don't go off the track because if you go off the track, you're actually more likely to run into more snakes, especially if you're in the cactus areas. There was cacti everywhere around us. I thought, yep. Rattlesnakes are going to be all around here. <laughs> okay, stick to the track, move forward. Not territorial. It should have moved on. Take a step forward. This time it starts to leech up and I'm just like, oh, you're angry. I step back and go, oh, okay. Try for the third time. Go forward. Rattle starts rattling. <laughs> it's up, up, sitting up high in strike position. I'm just like, oh, no, that's, that's not for me. Step back and then I'm just like, there's nothing I can do here. Like I have to go around. Ended up trying to go around thinking, I'm going to run into so many snakes. It's not going to be funny, but it was all right. Apparently, I was one of two people in that race to have come across a <laughs> They're like, trust the Aussie to find the snake. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, we started, well, you started doing the running and then you got taken away from you and you started playing around with bells. So let's talk about how bells come into your life and how you started representing Australia as a kettlebell oh, athlete. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, um started playing around with the bells because I was finding out that it was actually like helping the joints in terms of like almost creating a distraction in them. Um, so obviously they become a little bit more of a fundamental tool that I'd use more regularly. I'm not really a weight trainer, so I'm not somebody that particularly likes to go into the gym and start lifting weights. Um, I am your typical runner that just wants to go out and run. Um, even though I know that that's not the best thing for me. So in this process, started playing around and I was like, oh, okay, kettlebells seem all right. Uh, Shannon had started recently uh, working for the uh, FTI, AIK at the time, and they'd started uh, getting involved with the GS Sport. Uh, one of the guys there, Peter Kirk, had organised to get one of the Russian lifters over and I thought I'd go and have a look at this sport and see what it was like and sitting there watching it. I was like, I can do this. Like, I'm pretty sure I could do this. So I think it wasn't very long after that, that I decided that I was going to have a crack at it. And yeah, ever since then, I've kind of been addicted. <laughs> yeah. So much so that you and Shannon are now head of GS Sport Australia now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm now the president of the GSAA somehow and not sure how that actually happened. Um, that was never, never on the plan and never part of the, the plan, but somehow ended up doing that. But again, it's led me to some pretty, yeah. pretty amazing opportunities. I've been able to represent our country at, at the sport in Ireland, Kazakhstan and Seoul. Um, I, I've represented on both an amateur and a professional level. I managed to get a couple of Australian records along the way. I've managed to meet some pretty cool people within the country and the world. And again, one of those ones where these people that just keep sort of popping up at different places where it's amazing that you can meet someone from the other side of the world in one country and find yourself with them in a different country. Yeah, it's super cool. So 
What's it? So, yeah, you said you've got some records. Tell people about your records and tell, like, I guess, explain like how much of a big deal it is and like how challenging this sport can be. Oh, it's not really much of a big deal because <laughs> not too many people know about it. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Um, oh, well, I recently had one record broken on me. That was a short-lived record. Oh, <laughs> tell us about that one. It was all right, but it was all, it was all right, but so um, well as part of being the president, we we decided there needed to be some more uniformity and unity within the sport. So we started putting together some records because the record keeping was pretty pretty loose. But there were there were a couple of records that were uh, wanting to be known because uh, particularly in the professional, the twenty four kilo snatch, for example, there were some women that were starting to really get up there and starting to hit some numbers that not many people in in the world had actually hit previous to that. So we started doing some research to find out what the records were, and we found out that uh, the twenty four kilo, as far back as we could go in the snatch, the the biggest record I think was sixty three reps at the time, and then. After doing that research, the, the whole thing was uh, the girls that were currently competing with 24 kilo snatch were just trying to beat the 100 uh, rep because that's a kind of a big deal within the sport. Well, it was. It's, it's got a lot higher for the Russian girls now. And there's a couple <laughs> of Europeans and Americans now, now getting up, up into the uh, high hundreds to 200 rep range. So that's short-lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, last year I ended up uh, being able to bang out 96 reps with the 24 kilo snatch, which is still the Australian record. Um, I've got the one arm long cycle record for the 16 kilo, which I think was 130 or 140 reps. Ad living now. <laughs> uh, I think the, the 16 kilo snatch, I've got the Australian record for that 188 reps. Um, and I got that actually at the, the, the Dublin comp. Uh, I've also done that in Australia as well. I have, I had the Australian record for the two arm long cycle, which was, uh, eight kilo. I go, it was originally at 102, I believe. And I ended up getting it up to 120. 111 is what it was. I got 111 reps out down in Tasmania and me and one of the girls are having a bit of a laugh about it. She's like, I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm going to get that record. <laughs> Not only did she get the record, she, she absolutely smashed it out of the ballpark. I think she got like 142 reps Whoa. or something like that. So that's going to be a tough one to beat. And she did that after doing a, uh, a 30 minute set with a 12 kilo one arm long cycle. So I was pretty impressed at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, I think I think that's all the records that I've got at the moment. But yeah, they're they're kind of cool to be able to look at now. We're starting to really fill in the blanks with uh, within Australia for those records to actually to mean something can become a little bit more special in terms of they're going to be harder to break as the as the years go on. And I think having those records too is a great thing for people to be able to uh, aspire towards because yeah. you don't know what the target is. You're kind of just throwing bells around for the sake of throwing bells around. One of the things I do like about the kettlebell sport is that um, it was it, up until sort of going off to Worlds, for me personally, it was just such a, a self-competitive sport. Like I didn't care what other people were doing. It was more about I just want to beat me and get the reps that I want to get so that I know that I've done better. And even on a community level within Australia, nobody is ever thinking that somebody shouldn't do well 
even though we are competing against each other, everybody wants to see someone succeed at the sport because someone succeeding at the sport means that we become better lifters around them because of that. Yeah. Um, which is something that I find is very rare within a lot of sports. Like there's, there's usually not that, that support behind each other. Whereas with, with the kettlebell sport within our community, people just want to see people succeed. It doesn't matter what it is. We, we all understand that you get under the bell and it hurts from about three minutes on. You've got seven minutes of putting up with that pain before, you know, the set's going to be over and everybody gets into that hurt locker and finds their, uh, their happy place in their unhappy space and just tries to do their best. So we all try and learn from each other. We all try and help each other. We all just want to see each other succeed because if we can succeed as individuals, we succeed as a team. And we look at it as a global level now as opposed to a local level, uh, even though the sport itself is growing substantially over the last three years. Uh, we've never had as many competitions as what we've had this year. Next year will be no exception. Um, we just, the more people get to know about it, the better it is. I mean, yeah. the, the, the joy and happiness it's brought me over the last four years, because I've only been doing it for four years, has just been, I just want to give back to the community. And that's pretty much the only reason why I ended up getting into this role was because I want to, I want to create the community that's given me so much and give it back to it as well. Yeah, that's super cool. I like that. So <laughs> how, let's talk about, see if people like try and get like how, what I'm trying to say is how did kettlebells help your running and how did running help your bells? So this might be good to like get people to do that cross training thing that everyone always talks about with when you do lots of running, they say go do some cross training that never really happens. How does, how did bells help you? become a better runner and how did running help you become a better kettlebell? Well, obviously the running has that uh, cardiovascular side of it. So obviously the, the main things with kettlebell sport is uh, endurance, strength, flexibility, um, speed and power. Um, you need those five elements to be good at kettlebell sport. Uh, in running, depending on what your goals are, depends on what you need. I definitely had the endurance side of it. One of the things that I've always been good at is the endurance side of it, which then also meant that I had the, the ability to be able to put myself because of the ultra runner running into uh, a mindset of being able to be in the hurt locker for a really, really, really long time. Um, I'm finding a comfortable position in that uncomfortable space. <laughs> um, the, the kettlebells really helped me with my running in terms of, I never did any weight training. Um, I was lucky though because I did a lot of uh, trail running, which which kind of transferred over a little bit as weight training because of the hills, and that sort of added that load for me. Um, however, the the kettlebells themselves, I've always tended to lift heavier bells rather than lighter bells. I I am one of those ridiculously stupid people who started on a kilo bell, whereas most people will start on a twelve kilo bell or an eight kilo bell. <laughs> um, and I was just like, no, let's just go with 20. So my first like year of competing was all with a 20 kilo bell. Um, it wasn't that it dawned on me that there were, there were lighter bells. <laughs> 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 I'm like, oh, 16. Yeah. Okay. I can try a 16. Why not? <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the strength side of it has helped me become uh, injury free. So 
the the kettlebell sport, obviously, especially with the jerk uh, and that movement with my Achilles tendinopathy, with being able to get that that bounciness in my in my step. Um, it's helped with my arthritis in terms of joint health because it's constantly creating space and movement. Um, it's it's one of those ones that for me, it's it's an all over body exercise. It helps on days where most runners want to run every day, but it's not beneficial for your health. You need to have rest days in between. I can work on my cardio while doing kettlebells because it's still doing the endurance base of exercise, um, but without the impact that running would give me. So that kind of crosses over really well for that and vice versa. I can go and get the impact from running and still get the cardio crossover for kettlebells as well. I think that's really important because I think why a lot of people get, in, I guess, get started in the running because it's the easiest thing to start. You put your shoes on and run. Well, there's not a lot of, not yet, you guys are changing that, but there's not a lot of info on how to get into kettlebell sports. But literally, you can do this stuff in your lounge room and in your backyard. So you can still get outside. Like you guys share videos of you guys doing it in the backyard all the time. You do it at a park. Like how easy is it to like get into and like start doing and for runners, like how they can just bust it down in their lounge room and do that run day, kettlebell day, run day and still build up their training overall. I've got a friend over in New Zealand at the moment and she's got herself a kettlebell and she's like, oh my God, I never knew that this kettlebell could do so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> so she quite often tag me in like her Instagram account to say, look, Cheryl, look, I'm lifting it, but I'm still not lifting it as quick or as fast as you are. <laughs> uh, the, the kettlebell sport's great in terms of, we had the, uh, some guys from Russia come over last year and their first question was, why are so many pretty women in this room? Because not a lot of women lift in, in Russia compared to in, in Australia. I think there was maybe 10 women in the room and two dudes. He's just like, I don't understand. Why are there women here? You girls are pretty. Shouldn't you be off doing other fun things? Um, and then they're like, why do you girls do kettlebell sport? And their first thing was, all you need is a, a square meter of free space. Every house has a meter of free space that you can have around you and not have an issue with. So it's great for people that have got young children. It's great for people that, you know, only have a short amount of time or don't want to buy a lot of equipment that, you know, all they need is one piece of equipment and you can do so much with it. Um, the, the main thing with kettlebell sport is getting your technique right. Yes. And not doing heavy weights too soon. The biggest problem we see with people is injury and it's because they try and ego their way the weight scale faster than what their body's actually able to do. So a bit of humility goes a long way with uh, obviously kettlebell sport and ultra running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and not only that, you'll find it much more enjoyable if you take the stress out of the sport um, and actually just allow yourself to process along the way. Um, we see people quite often get up onto a platform and expect a result without doing the work. It's a sport that you need to have put in a lot of work to, 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 to get out of it what you actually intend on reaching. It's, it's an endurance sport. Endurance sports aren't something that you step onto a platform and absolutely kill at unless you're a freak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's outlier stuff. 
when you see yeah, all those things, <laughs> yeah, when you see all those things on YouTube and Instagram and about these people who just pick up something and become awesome at it, that's outlier stuff. When you mm. think about ninety percent of the population, we have to practice the skill to get better at the movement. And I think what's really cool is what you said is like it's really easy sport to get into, but as long as your technique sound, which everyone knows what a butchered kettlebell swing looks like and things like that. And it's kind of like, so what you guys, you and doggy do GS sport training at Lone Dog in Aubrey, but how long, long, like we sort of say like my, most of the people that listen to the podcast are like busy. So they won't be able to do a massive commitment. So give an example of like how many sessions to get the technique down and then they can start playing with themselves. It's a tough one. This is like, it depends. Sorry, I was just having a little bit of a laugh of how long before they get to play with themselves. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Whatever you like. Whatever feels good. <laughs> really. <laughs> um, so it really depends. So some people pick up the, the technique really quickly. Um, other people, um, it takes a couple of, you know, a little bit longer to pick up. On, on average, I'd say three to four sessions to get the technique enough to be able to go and do it alone. And then after you get those three or four sessions to, to get the technique down pat, uh, you kind of need to go away and practice it for a little while and then come back and then have another session. So a lot of our, our sessions that we do um, that we do via online, we'll, we'll have the guys, it, they're usually people that have done something either with us before so they know the technique to start off with and then we'll do uh, a Skype session with them to talk about the technique um, or have it set up so that uh, if we're could we travel a lot uh, if we're in the town that they're in we can organize to actually do a in-person session with them while we're there um, most of the time we find it's not too hard um, to get that sort of side of it done but even just the the Skype one it, it's it's if you've got someone that can communicate well and yeah. even on the level that you need to be communicated with, some people like to be told, some people like to be shown, some people, you know, have to see it written down or told in a, a different type of analogy to get the actual idea of what you're telling them. Um, that, will, that will depend on how, how well they take that training. But, yeah, very much so three to four sessions you'd want to have with a coach in person before going off and practicing those techniques on your own. At that point, you could start a program where you could do your own at-home program. I mean, for example, training itself for me this week, my sessions are 15 minutes. Yeah. Like that's 15-minute sessions. I'm done. And Don't like have anything to do. 15 minutes, I'm in, I'm out. It's five-minute warm-up, five-minute set, Five-minute cool down, a little bit of stuffing around in between. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the biggest thing about it and the coolest thing about it is like people have this thing about they have to be doing fluff for an hour. You get this, do the kettlebell sport, get in, get the work done, and you go about your day. It's a lot of work in a very short amount of time and your body adapts to it really, really well. And when you think about it in terms of um, learning the sport to start off with, when you first start learning a new technique, doing the repetition for a long amount of time wrong yeah. is the way to learn something anyway. 
unless you want to learn how to do it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So going and doing something and focusing on that technique to start off with for a short amount of time is really good for your brain and your body. And then coming back and trying it again when you're fresh because they do take it out of you. And after 15 minutes of throwing a weight around, um, you're going to be tired and fatigued, both physically and mentally. So you want to be able to take that break to come back so that you come back and you're trying to do that movement as best you can. Yeah, and it's kind of when you look into the flow state stuff, which kettlebell, I reckon, kettlebell sport, to get really good at it, you've got to get into a nice flowing movement pattern. But they always say when you get to the flow state, you should finish feeling fresh because you can come back and you'll press save on whatever it is you just did movement-wise and you come back and you pick it up again really quickly. But if you move into fatigue state, you press save on average form and average movement and you bring that back into your next session and you have to rewire that all over again. That's a yes. really hard one for people to get around. But when they get it, it's like, ah, oh, it feels really good now. It's the same as the running coaching. I always say to the guys that I, that I coach with the running, most of the guys are so surprised when they come back to me and go, oh, I did that run you asked me to do on the weekend. I felt like I could have gone for hours. Perfect. Oh, that's where you needed to be because if you go to the end of that and you feel like you need to have a week off, you've done too much. Mm. You've gone too far. You're outside of your bubble. You don't need to have to go for a really long time. Because <laughs> like Jez actually did my running program for the Ultra Beast before Theo was born. And we had moments like that all the time where there was one run I would go out and I was like, oh, I could do that one forever. And they're the ones I still do now when I do go out and run. And there was other runs where I went out outside my bubble and I blew my calf and stupid stuff like that. But yeah, there's... But again, you know, knowing, knowing those outlines and where you need to be. Yeah. Without you doing that stuff, but you wouldn't have learnt that and there would be no buy-in, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's <laughs> sort of like if you told me to stay inside my bubble and I just did it and I'll be like... There's that point where there's a thing that gets talked about where you're activated. You start something. There's a certain thing in your head before you start something where you're like, this is the thing I'm looking for. And once you get that thing, you like straight away, you do anything that a person ever tells you ever again. So that was the point for me was like going out and running and then like, it doesn't have to be in the suck the whole time when I could go out, listen to a podcast and I was just enjoying going out for a three hour run in the trails run, run, walk in the trials and just enjoying it versus just going out and absolutely destroying myself and not being able to do anything for another two days, whatever it ends up being. And that's, that's pretty much the guys that start running with me that go, I just want to run 5Ks that end up becoming ultra runners are the guys that have A, no expectation about where they're going and B, just go with the process because it feels good as opposed to forcing it. Yeah. No, that's super cool. All right, so... Is there anything else you want to share about your bells, about running, or even about the online? Like, do you guys gonna do you guys promote online coaching for the kettlebell sport? We we actually don't promote it. <laughs> <laughs> we do it. I'll delete that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can you can. We probably should promote it to tell you the I truth. So you guys are probably <laughs> the two best bellers in Australia, and you run the kettlebell sports Australia. So it makes sense to promote that you guys do online. We're really, really great at marketing. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> so, uh, our, our strength's definitely not marketing. <laughs> <laughs> However, we do, we do have a pretty good uh, word of mouth reference. 
sort of setup. So, you know, hey guys, if you're out there and you want to do some online coaching for kettlebell sports, hit us up. <laughs> That's an important thing. You guys have got the championship in how when when's the July, championship? Seventh of July. We'll have the Australian National Championship. So all of the best uh, kettlebellers in Australia will be within this town of Albury. Down at the entertainment centre, we will be putting it all on for show. We're going to have an amazing setup down there. There's going to be an artist that's going to be drawing live. Uh, Is that the one that, did, that does the ones that, like, yeah, well, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. So she's Even if you don't like bells, come down and watch the drawing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We've, 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 well, we might as well hire a clown to do some balloon art. <laughs> Don't hold but, me to that one. <laughs> so, if, yeah. If you're outside of Aubrey, try and get into Aubrey at that time to see what Bells is about. But there's comps going on around Australia, so you can check out. Do you have a GS website? Yeah, yeah, there's GS website, but I can tell you we're up in Brisbane this weekend uh, for the the Perth, the Brisbane Open. The 26th of May, we're over for the Perth Open. The 2nd of June, we're down in Melbourne for the Melbourne Open. And then on the 7th of July, we're here in Aubrey for the Australian Nationals. So that's what we've got coming up for kettlebell sport within Australia. That's pretty awesome. And then you, if you end up going along to any of those ones, you will pick Doggy and Cheryl out pretty easy. They're the ones running the show and you can run over to them, give them a hug and then a weird kiss on the ear and then ask them about kettlebell sports. Pretty much just lick the ear over, move on. and <laughs> That's how we all say hello and all agree. Um, <laughs> All right, is there anything else you would like to share with the crew? I don't think so. It's pretty amazing. You went, you told us, yeah, you told us so much awesome stuff about your journey, which is really cool. It's <laughs> super inspiring. Like, I reckon a lot of people are going to be like, if they feel like they're in suck town at the moment, it might be, it'd be good to sort of listen to and see what you come through and what you're doing now and how you sort of kept finding a way forward. Which is cool. Well, I suppose the, the finish to it is that I just finished the, the Alps to Ocean Ultra and was able to come home and within two weeks yes. um, win uh, state titles, at the New South Wales state titles, kettlebells. So not only was I able to come home from doing a 300 and, you know, 30K race, within two weeks of coming home, I was competing on a platform at optimal level. So... I'd been able to prove to myself that not only was multi-day racing possible without killing myself, but I was also able to um, perform at a high level in kettlebell sport within two weeks of finishing such an event. So uh, within three weeks of finishing that event, my body was back to normal enough that I could run. Which is pretty amazing when it's like, when money's not on the line for this stuff, like when you're not getting paid to do this stuff and it stops becoming a health thing and a it's a money thing. That's super important. Like you've built this massive capacity to do this stuff where you can go off and do multi-day events and come back two weeks later and perform compared to before where your capacity wasn't as big or you're just moving outside the capacity that you had and the recovery was taking 12 months. That's a big knowledge bomb for everybody. I think. Yeah. Yep. So that was also that was 330 Ks as opposed to the 250 Ks that, that blew me out for 12 months previous to that. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. That's super cool. All right. Thanks Ace, for jumping on the call. You're welcome. Thanks for having all me. info to find shares and doggy and Jess sport and lone dog. That'll be all in the show notes, but yeah, that was an awesome chat. Thanks dude. 
Thanks for listening to the Move, Eat and Re-Energize podcast show. If you got value out of it or you know anyone who will get value out of it or you just want to be a super awesome person, please go to iTunes, leave a review and share the show around to everyone. You can share it on social media, send it an email, whatever you can do because the more you guys share it, the more we can grow and the more reach we can have and help people become strong, lean and awesome. If you are stuck at the moment and want help, we are right now doing three free 30-minute phone calls for everybody who wants one and we'll go over how to get you started to on the journey to becoming strong, lean and awesome and the best version of you. All you have to do is go to our website and click on the link. Give five, get 25. Thanks, guys.